Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. What does it take to make it in the restaurant business? It takes nerves of steel, the heart of a hero, and maybe you have to be a little bit crazy. This week, we're visiting with chefs who have compiled many accolades and awards in restaurants across the South. New Orleans-born chef John Currens achieved his success in the little town of Oxford, Mississippi, where he owns and runs a quartet of restaurants, starting with the opening of City Grocery in 1992. John recounts for us the formative moments that make up his life in food. Then, we visit Pesh Seafood Grill, where chef Ryan Pruitt replicates live fire techniques he learned on a trip to Uruguay. And the unabashed, unapologetic chef Donald Link is back to share the story of how he became, well, Donald Link. We're visiting with the greats on this week's Louisiana Eats. Those who strike out on their own are often surprised to find that home inevitably seems to call them back. While Chef John Currents has found purpose and fame in Oxford, Mississippi, his passion for food is intrinsically linked to his childhood and early adult life in New Orleans. The James Beard Award-winning chef sat down with us to reflect on the formative moments of his career. As it turns out, one such moment involved a waffle maker, vodka, and a stolen bicycle. It was a rainy Sunday, and my, my folks were watching a Saints game on a little black and white TV. And in my mind, like everything was attached by extension cords across the room. And they had, and this, this part is very clear because I talked to my mom about this recently, they had this old Sunbeam waffle maker that... My mom was making Rubens on, and so they were using the waffle machine, which maybe they had reversible plates or something, but was making Rubens on this waffle machine. And my dad was, you know, maybe making Bloody Bulls or or something. It was raining, and I was dressed up like the Gordon's fisherman guy and like my yellow rain slicker and pants and boots, and I had a new Schwinn Stingray bicycle with a banana seat and a sissy bar and all that, and probably some purple and gold streamers coming out of the handlebars, and I'm just riding around our block on Britannia Street. I grew up right across the street from where St. James Cheese Company is. These, you know, these young kids you know, came up out of the other neighborhood and stopped me. And this one kid had a uh, hacksaw, and he says, get off your bike, or I'll cut your hand off. Oh, God. 
And so there I was, you know, just dejected and crying in the pouring rain as this fat kid rides off on my bicycle, you know, laughing and as slowly as he could go without the bicycle falling over. And so, of course, I go home and I'm crying and I'm soaking wet and water's coming off of me. And, and you know, and of course, it's like you know, some sort of important point in the game. And my dad's like, yeah, hey, yeah, yeah, just sit down, you know. And I'm sort of waiting for him to, you know, either make me feel better. I'm, you know, I'm not a sissy. Like, he's going to get me a new bike or something. And he's like, just look, Archie's in a position here. We got to, you know, we got to, we got to focus on the game. This is third and four. And at some point, he just kind of hands me his bloody bowl and he's like have a sip of this you know just look without even looking at me just have a sip of this you'll you'll feel better was was it your paternal or your maternal grandfather who had a country store that I think also I, I just picked up from, you know, your meat curing, your making bacon and sausages from scratch. Somehow I feel like that experience of your grandfather's country store kind of figures in who you are today. Well, it, it was my, my maternal grandfather, and, and they did have this wonderful little store. You know, strangely enough, it was called McDonald's, which I, I always thought was interesting because they were McDonald's. This is my middle name. And it was, you know, like a lot of those old country stores where, you know, rural, before they delivered newspapers, they delivered everybody's newspaper to the store. So everybody came into the store to have coffee and pick up their newspaper and get a honey bun. And you could buy slab bacon or they'd slice bologna for you. There's a meat, you know, olive loaf, all that stuff. And and frequently, you know, somebody would be toasting bread or making biscuits and folks just like sat around a barrel fire and talked or sat inside around a heater and a kerosene heater and, and just talked, um, you know, in the mornings. And But yeah, all of that definitely informs, you know, my food. I, I never in my life dreamed, you know, that I was, you know, heading towards, you know, this future as a chef or that I was going to make some sort of profound difference in people's lives, or, you know, or, or unearth something massive like, uh, you know, Sean Brock or Frank Stitt, um, you know, did in Southern Food. There are enough things in my life that it made perfect sense, and it was almost inevitable that I would end up here. Um, you know, and, you know, not the least of which is just growing up in New Orleans where there was it's not as if you know going to antoine's every christmas eve sort of drove me to become a chef but it certainly informed part of what i do you know every day and certainly has given me a lot of uh, fodder for stories sort of found uh, cooking by mistake. Uh, my, my first job cooking was uh, when I was put on a tugboat um, after my senior year in high school and was assigned the duties of the cook because I was a low man on the totem pole. And so I was cooking for 10 guys three times a day, you know, in a, out in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico. And so it was very much sort of a sink or swim situation. And I, I survived, but I also really enjoyed that galley cooking. I mean, it was it was strange to me because I'd never cooked really before with 
any sort of ambition at all. Um, but this little bitty kitchen where you could – there's literally – you couldn't stand anywhere in the kitchen and not touch every other surface. It was tiny. And that, that led me to you know restaurant jobs when I was in college and post-college. And it was really moving back home to New Orleans after I had you know, spent three years in the kitchen with Bill Neal at Crook's Corner in Chapel Hill. Not young enough that I didn't understand the significance of being – there um, and then curating jobs because I wanted to learn more about it. Um, so I had worked in the cut shop um, at the Food Lion grocery store because I wanted to learn how to cut meat. And I worked for a, a little Jewish smokehouse operation where I was butchering and brining and smoking bluefish and salmon by the hundreds of pounds. I got a job as a bread baker at an Italian restaurant because I wanted to learn how to bake bread. And, and all these things while I was in Chapel Hill were leading me down that path, but it wasn't until I came home to help Larkin Selman open Gotro's, and I saw the fire and the passion in Larkin and what he was capable of generating um, in the way of response in that little bitty dining room on Soniat Street, and realized that the thing that I loved about cooking was that it really combined all of the passions that I had all at once. I mean, it was artistic. It required an ability to approach technique and reproduce things consistently over and over and over again. It was intense getting ready for service and then even more intense during service. There was booze. There were drugs. I mean, it was it was everything in the world that I could want all at once, and it all went on, you know, sort of late at night, so there was a sinister thing about it. <laughs> um, but you could stand at the door in the kitchen and look through the little diamond-shaped piece of glass out into the dining room and immediately gauge someone's response to something that you had made and they were putting in their mouths. And so those were all the things that really sort of led me to it. It was just, it was fun. It was intense. Um, you know, you were sharing a piece of your life with everything that went out, you know, to a diner. Um, and these were all things that, uh, that I loved. And I think I understood early that, you know, that, that creating food was about storytelling. And um, so that really drew this moth to that flame. When we come back from a short break, our conversation with Chef John Currents continues. But first, how many James Beard Awards has John Currents received, and what are they for? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Crystal Hot Sauce, made with three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. From Rouse's Markets, 
synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways. Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Do your red beans cook up so creamy because they're cooked in Grandma's bean pot? Or is it her wooden spoon that makes them so special? Camellia Brand wants to honor your family's culinary keepsakes during their upcoming centennial. Share your treasures by emailing images and stories to me at poppy at poppytooker.com and we'll make sure you're part of the celebration. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. How many James Beard Awards has Chef John Currents received, and what are they for? The James Beard Foundation has nominated John a total of six times. Four of those nominations were for the category Best Chef, for his stellar work at Oxford, Mississippi's City Grocery. After being nominated in 2005, 6, 7, and 8, John was finally awarded the prize in 2009. Since earning the title of Best Chef, he has also received nominations for each of his two cookbooks, Pickles, Pigs, and Whiskey, a title that says a mouthful about John, was nominated in the American cooking category in 2014. Big Bad Breakfast received a nomination in 2017. Way to go, John. Keep up the good work. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. And now our conversation with John Currents continues. Knowing that John's parents had put him through a full education at the prestigious Newman School in New Orleans, I asked John about their initial reaction when he chose a career in the kitchen. My father was was very troubled at first. I don't think he understood at all, you know, why it was that I was going down this road. I think he he had hoped uh, probably when I came home from Chapel Hill, that I took this job with Larkin just as a, you know, as a bridge to whatever I was going to do, and you know, maybe just enroll in Tulane and finish up my classes, and you know, and go on to do something noble. And I know that in the first couple of years that I was back home, that we had conversations that kind of touched on it a little bit, but the most vivid memory that I have was him sitting down with me one day and saying. You know, I, I didn't understand this at all because um, when, I, when I moved home, I, I moved back in with my parents and I lived with them. So I was out the door early and home late. And, and, and after about 18 months, I remember my dad saying, I didn't understand this at all, but I've never seen anybody work as hard at what they're doing as you're working at this job. And he goes, so now while I worry about, you know, you and, you know, whether you're being compensated fairly for what you're doing – I have to tell you, I'm impressed, and if this is what you want to do, you know, you need to you need to continue this path because clearly, you know, it's what you want. 
Um, you know, he's also the same guy who, you know, I remember sitting in a cab outside of a restaurant called the Gay Hussar in London um, when, when I was about 12 years old. And before we got out of the cab to go inside, uh, I remember m- my father telling me very specifically, he said, I want you to, when you go inside here, to understand that the gentlemen in tuxedos here that are waiting tables, there's some of them that have waited tables here for 30 or 40 years. This is their job, and we don't recognize service as a noble profession in the United States, but these are people who they are very proud of what they do. They're respected for doing that job within the community, and oddly, you know, in spite of the fact that a very small percentage of guys in my industry, you know, reach the point of celebrity that... You know, I'm at the the very bottom end of that, but you know, it's still not really recognized as a as a noble profession, and I mean, to the point where I just had a conversation at lunch today. Why, you know, I've never been invited to Newman for career day, or to share my experiences in my career as an author, or you know, as a chef, you know, or the people that I'm connected to, or what that connectivity means, you know, back to Newman, and you know. Uh, I've said I've had this conversation with Neil Bodenheimer, with with uh, Adam Biederman, um, with Larkin. None of us. I mean, we've got guys that are, you know, that are, are very accomplished in our field. But you know, it's still they don't need us infecting their young doctors and lawyers, <laughs> and that's kind of a sad thing to me. Why do you think you've been so successful at this? You know, I take a, a very honest approach. I knew when I opened that I didn't possess the ability to create, you know, a statement about some particular kind of food because I didn't have enough experience or education or passion for one particular area of food. I was just passionate about food in general. I knew that, you know, even like going into Oxford that if I tried to overreach my abilities as a chef, that I would fail in a heartbeat. And that I was in a town that was hungry for something, but I knew that they were going to want quantity, they were going to want quality. And as a result, we created menus that combined flavors and textures that people would like, things that I had cooked before, um, but they were from all over the world. Um, And just sort of depending on what I was into in the day. And so... That honesty, I think, people appreciated. And it wasn't, you know, until about eight or ten years in that, you know, I I finally – I got so exhausted with knowing that I couldn't answer the question, which, you know, Frank Stitt was the first one to ask me about two years into my cooking was, you know, he asked me, he said, explain your philosophy on food, you know, to to me. And I went, philosophy? And I thought I left that behind in Virginia at the all-boys school. I don't know what you're talking about. And I just kind of ran away from this conversation. But it troubled me that, you know, I was also having people ask me just like, explain your restaurant. And I didn't have an elevator pitch for it. I couldn't give, you know, a a subtitle for for City Grocery Um, and that I needed to figure out what it was that I was doing. And, and, And that really, you know, it took me about eight years to really figure out, um, you know, sort of what was going on and what it was that drove me to cook. 
How did it feel to win that James Beard Award, Best Chef of the South, in 2009? I'm not going to lie to you. My, my wife got me hammered before that. And, <laughs> well, I, I mean, there was no reason for me to believe that I was going to win. I mean, I still to this day, you know, I tell folks every year, it's like, oh, nine was the worst recession year for awards that must have ever happened if I won that thing. Because when I look at the guys that I was nominated against, like the slate of talent was so fantastic. I, I think that was my fifth year to be nominated. And, you know, and I'd gotten to where I had just paralyzing butterflies in my stomach and and I didn't want to ever appear to be disappointed because I really was so flattered you know to just be included in that group of you know of incredibly talented chefs every year that we went out to Danielle Balud's place um, right before we went and I had two double bourbons just so that you know I could I could just like not care when they didn't call my name and we and we could sort of coast through this 11 hour long award ceremony and so my wife and I, I remember we got in the auditorium and we were just giggling and giggling and giggling and I didn't wasn't even following the program I didn't know that our category had even come up because it was very early in the program that year and we were giggling about something and all of a sudden she goes oh my god that's you up on the screen <laughs> But, I mean, honestly, it was the most flattering moment professionally that, you know, that I can ever imagine. Um, but, you know, I also knew um, and, you know, and I, and I think I said as much when I accepted it that, you know, it's a shame that they give that award to a chef because that chef doesn't exist without every person, you know, that – that has contributed to, to, to putting that food together and, and putting it on a table, serving it, managing it, washing the dishes. I mean, and, you know, even the, the rotten SOBs that you've had to fire participated in helping propel you to that point. And so it, w- it was a wonderful night, um, and, and it was a wonderful and exhausting night. Uh, I think I was in, in bed within an hour after it was over because I was just such an emotional wreck. Well, Congratulations. That's quite a successful tale, my dear. I know. It's kind of exhausting just listening to that, isn't it? Hey, man, I'm in awe. So <laughs> I'm, I'm in awe, and I'm thrilled to have had this chance to have such a wonderful, wonderful chat with you. Well, Thank you so much. Thank you, love. John Perrins, author and James Beard award-winning chef. We spoke with John in 2016. Twenty fourteen was a big year for Ryan Pruitt, chef and co-owner of Pesh Seafood Grill in New Orleans, a restaurant he runs with partners Donald Link and Steven Strajewski. When the James Beard Award Ceremony was held that May, the young chef was awarded prizes in two categories, Best Chef of the South and, with Donald and Steven, Best New Restaurant in America. 
That same year, Ryan welcomed us into Pesh's award-winning kitchen, where they cook Gulf seafood on an open fire over hardwood coals. Take us back to how the concept of live fire cooking came into your life and how it changed it. Uh, so it came in uh, during a trip um, I took with a, a bunch of friends of mine to Uruguay. Traveling down there with a bunch of uh, sort of barbecue uh, cooks led us to this, basically cooking with these guys kind of in an open, in a field um, and cooking with their sort of traditional methods, which involved using fire uh, in a way that was just entirely new to me. They are literally building walls of fire, just huge stacks of wood uh, that they just set on fire. I mean, the fire is so hot that they're putting metal pots, you know, handmade metal pots within a few feet of it, and the water is boiling. Like, you can't even get up close to it. And they're pulling the coals that fall through a grate they have the fire burning in, and then cooking over them in, in either low heat or a high heat situation or burying pots in it. And it was just this sort of entire kitchen where the cooking method was based on this giant amount of fire. I mean, that, that's kind of their thing. I mean, this whole like idea of cooking out in the open, this is what they do and kind of how they do it. And they were all very sort of matter of fact about what they were doing. But just seeing how you're able to use so many different levels from the slow cooking to high heat searing to using the full power of the fire and everything in between was just completely new and different. You had been long involved with Donald Link and Steven Strajewski, of course, who are the famous chef owners of Donald Has Herb Saint. They have Koshan together. And you had been the chef at Herb Saint. And You've been working within this group for about eight years. So you come home from Uruguay, and how do you all decide to take what you've learned and apply it in a new restaurant? Uh, so we, we had been talking about opening a seafood restaurant for years, and you know we were kind of wrestling with what direction the restaurant was gonna go. You know, where it all kind of came together is, is we sort of all fell in love with these cooking techniques. We wanted to open a seafood restaurant, and we just sort of merged the two. It was really a pretty easy merger. You know, the, the ideas of cooking seafood over fire, I mean, f grilled fish tastes great. You know, shrimp on a grill tastes great. And all these things, you know, these are sort of proven concepts. Where it really came together for us is that we wanted it to all happen over an actual wood fire device. Kind of move away from the gas grills and those sort of more controlled cooking elements and have something that has more life to it, that has more energy. So the, the cooking system that you use here, you all designed yourself? Mm -hmm. We did. Uh, we designed it over the course of a couple of months, um, lots of napkin drawings, uh, and, and then we were lucky to have a very talented welder in Donald's cousin, Dwayne Link, who was able to sort of take our, our scribblings and various measurements and ideas and, and fabricate something that really is better than we ever could have imagined. Well, now that we've heard the story, can we please go back to the kitchen and see this amazing fire in action? Absolutely, let's go check it out. 
Ryan took us back into the Pesh kitchen to show off their amazing creation. Monopolizing a large portion of his line was a smoking hot open grill. A stack of logs over three feet in height burned in a closed iron box to the left of the grill. As the logs turned into glowing coals, the cook scraped them across the fire bricks, providing some impressive direct heat. Cleverly, the grill was designed so that up to seven metal racks could be positioned over the fiery coals to provide different levels of heat. Wow, it's really hot. Uh, but, you know, we have a, a separate air conditioning unit back here. You know, we, we thought that we were, had sort of spent enough time putting it together. We're a couple of weeks in. The guy that's working the grill, I see him start to get a little woozy and light. Tell him to take a break. He drinks some water. A couple of minutes later, he literally just falls out on the floor back here. <laughs> uh, we bring him back to life and realize that we've got to take some other steps. So we have this floor fan that we used to blow air across the bottom. We installed this door to make sure that we deflect all the heat backwards. When you shut the door, it's a lot cooler. I see. Um, you see it's kind of sloped here. Yeah. So everything at the front, when we stack the wood underneath here, that's where it's really hot. That's where we can really sear things. And if we want to sort of sear something and then slow cook it, we can sear it and slide it to the back or slide it up here and then kind of finish them up here. And then over on the far right-hand side, the furthest away from the fire next to the grill, there's a metal box right. that the doors closed. What goes on in the metal box? So th this is our most recent uh, toy that Dwayne built us. But I, I had been talking to him about building us a smoker. Ah. And I wanted to build a completely you know, enclosed smoker that could also double as a high temperature oven. And so we'll take coals from here, put some logs in there, shovel the coals on top of it. We put pans of ice in there, and then we can cold smoke things. So cold smoke cured fish, um, whatever we're, we're sort of doing when you don't want to cook anything and just apply smoke as a flavoring element. Additionally, we can pull the ice out. We can load it up with wood. We have what is really the most important tool in the entire now, kitchen. That is hilarious <laughs> to me. It looks to me like that's a blow dryer. What is that? that? This is that's exactly it. It's a dryer uh, tube attached to a hair dryer with duct tape and with aluminum foil. Yeah. We use it to force oxygen into the fire. So if you if you're sort of in the middle of service, you know there's no knob that you can crank the heat up on, and maybe the wood is a little wet and you're kind of in trouble. You know you can sort of come in here, turn the hair dryer on, and then all of a sudden can have this sort of raging fire. Wow. The grill is, we don't use it just during service. Like the I, the flavor of the grill, the cooking apparatus itself, we, we've really tried to apply to everything. You know, we've put everything from oysters to every vegetable you can imagine, either in the grill, in the coals, on the grill, in the smoker. You know, it really leads to a lot of, you know, the sort of creative juices start flowing. After spending so many years with stoves and saute pans and ovens and, you know, you, you run through all these methods and you're constantly reading and trying to educate yourself. And then you, you're sort of confronted with this contraption and it just, the whole kitchen, it leads to this creativity that's brand new for everybody. I mean, none of the cooks here have ever worked on anything like this. And so we all sort of get to look at it as a brand new device. That was Ryan Pruitt, chef at New Orleans 
Hesh Seafood Grill. Coming up next, we speak with chef, restaurateur, and homegrown Louisiana boy, Donald Link. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry. Their new stuffing mix brings the flavor to your holiday table. Available in herbal or cornbread. And their brown gravy and marinade have your turkey covered. Louisiana Fish Fry. Because life needs Louisiana flavor. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission. Located 40 minutes north of New Orleans' French Quarter, along the shores of Lake Pontchartrain. The delicious Tammany taste culinary scene and abundance of soft adventure attractions are among the many reasons to love the North Shore's charming communities. Fall on Louisiana's North Shore brings outdoor festivals and lots of holiday events. Find details on upcoming events itinerary suggestions, and more at louisiananorthshore.com. Call him whatever you like, brash, bold, authoritative, unapologetic, or arrogant, Donald Link is, above all else, one hell of a chef. Back in the spring of 2014, we sat down with Donald, and he shared a very personal glimpse into the forces that came together to turn that West Louisiana boy into the successful chef and restaurateur he is today. All his accolades and ambitions might have been different had he not made one crucial decision while studying finance at LSU. I had one semester left and walked out of a QBA 3000 level class and just, I'm sitting there with 200 people. I was like, I hate this. I don't want to do this for a living. I sit behind a desk and crunching numbers and working for somebody. It's like, I just walked out. I threw the books in the trash on the way out. Didn't drop the classes or anything. Just... So that's it for me. <laughs> Go find something else to do. And that's how it all started. You know, as usual, like through high school, I cooked. Cooked in McDonald's and Cotton's Hamburgers and some Mexican restaurant. So I just went back to cooking. You know, I went back to Sammy's Bar and Grill because it was fun and the girls were pretty. <laughs> yeah. And we got to go play golf on the Sundays and drink at the Gator Bar on Sunday night. I mean, it was a great life, you know, just... Just fell in love with the lifestyle too. I mean, food was always there, and this the lifestyle that really sold me on being a, a cook. And when I moved to San Francisco, I decided to make it official. The first thing I did when I got to San Francisco, I got a job cooking at Spaghetti Western. It's like a breakfast joint <laughs> uh, where all the rock stars and heroin addicts used to go. 
they come in all right, and then they go to the bathroom and come out and fall asleep at the breakfast counter. That must have been a glamorous job. It was job. great, yeah. Um, <laughs> but they asked me to start cooking at dinner. They found out I was from Louisiana. I'm like, we should do a Cajun thing at dinner. And so I did that for six months. And then they sold that restaurant, and the owners brought me to their place on the other side of Haight, Upper Haight, called Cha Cha Cha. That was a Caribbean restaurant. It was super busy, three-hour wait, cash only. I mean, it was a really rocking place. And that was where I learned to cook fast. Like two cooks doing, what, four or 500 people a night. And I made a bunch of money. I worked six days a week. I mean, we got cash tips. We got overtime. I mean, it was killing it. And then it hit me at that point. I was like, okay, so is this it? Is this the end of the road? Is this where it goes? I mean, at that time, I was like, I can't imagine making any more money doing this. But, God, I can't imagine working this hard for the rest of my life. I mean, 12-hour days, six, seven days a week. The toll it takes on the human body. Yeah, even at 23, it was like, man. I'm tired. (laughs) My ass kicked. But I wanted to take it farther, you know. I wanted to see what else was out there. And being around in San Francisco, you know, you start seeing all the, you know, the big-name restaurants. So I decided to go to culinary school. And that's when I started getting into the finer dining establishments. Went and worked for a crazy French guy at Flying Saucer because they said no one could work for him because he made everybody cry. And <laughs> and they said that anybody that can work for this guy will have it made for the rest of their life. So very next day, guess where I was? At the Flying Saucer. I want to work here. How'd that go? It was terrifying the first night. He did. He screamed, hollered, threw things. You know that old story of the... Uh, chef that stabs a knife in the critic's table yes that was him he's that guy like he did that and he threw people out of the restaurant he fired at least two people a night but i made it you know i made it through the first night and he said great job man i'll see you tomorrow and i was like i did it (laughs) so you got to do is get through the night what did you learn from that experience what was your big takeaway i learned how to be quiet keep my mouth shut and say yes chef Donald continued with culinary school while working in a handful of kitchens in San Francisco, prepping food at the Flying Saucer, spending days at a place called Scala's, and working brunch at a restaurant called The Elite. He wasn't the head chef there, but he worked the busiest shift of the week, cooking eggs to order. So I'm in six months into doing my own menu. Things are going great. People are loving it. I'm having a blast. It's me and one other cook. And we're doing like 300 brunches. I mean, this is back in the day where you just had to bust your ass. So one day, my friend, the other line cook, grandfather died, so he had to leave. So the chef's like, well, I'll I'll come in and work. So the way the line was set up is I did all the eggs. They did the poached eggs, toasting of the bread, and a couple other things. But I did all the omelets to order, French, yellow, perfect omelets, you know, nice, soft, scrambled eggs, over easy, the, the whole bit. So he's like, well, I'm going to work the egg station. I said, man, you can't handle the egg station. <laughs> and it's eggs and tickets. you got to do both. And I was like, man, you can't handle that. I said, you need to come over here and toast bread and poach eggs. He goes, well, I'm the chef, and I'm, I'm working the station. <laughs> so, so here it comes. Service starts. Tickets start to pour in. I mean, this line's no joke, man. Service starts to pour in, and there he goes, browning the omelets. I mean, just I'm like, man, you can't put color on them. He goes, well, that's what I was taught. I said, well, you were taught wrong. So anyway, this, he keeps getting worse. And then finally, I was like, man, I think I threw my spatula up against the wall. And I said, either get off my station or I'm walking. 
And he, <laughs> and he didn't. So I'm like, I just I said, I'll be out back smoking a cigarette if you change your mind. So in the middle of the rush, all hell's breaking loose. I just went back there and sat on the milk crate and just watched, waited. <laughs> Three minutes later, <laughs> man, you got to come back. I said, you're getting off my station? <laughs> he goes, fine. It's like, all right, I'll come back. <laughs> like I said, he really didn't want to work that station. So, yeah, I worked there. Scala's uh, another place called Zazie for a little bit. And then I got my intern at Bayona. Oh, you came to New Orleans so, as an intern to work started with Susan as, as an intern at Susan in 95. And I did that for a year and a half to two, made it up to sous chef there. And then moved back to San Francisco to open Chardonnay with Tracy Desjardins. And then I got an offer. I heard that that chef at the Elite, the place where that guy, chef, worked, already got fired. About time. This is my end. This could be my first chef job. I'm going to go in there. And I got my resume together, and I went in to the GM who was there when I cooked brunch. And, you know, I was really great with the GM and the owner. They loved me. And I went in, and I said, look, tell Tom. He was the owner at the time. I said, tell Tom that if he wants to do some real food here and do something to upgrade everything that goes on here and let me have my way, I'd love to be the chef here. I said, I won't be the chef here with this menu, but if he wants to make a change and take it up, let me know. And he said he agreed to it. And so I did that for God, a year and a half. So things went really good at the Elite. <clears throat> things went good, man. For 27-year-old got, Donald Blank. great write-ups. People loved the food. And then I started arguing with the GM over dumb stuff like, you know, he goes, you know, no one will ever be able to replace you. I'm like, well, how's that my problem? <laughs> <laughs> After several years of working for other people, Donald eventually decided it was time to work for himself, and in the process, found himself returning to Louisiana. Well, first I started looking around California. You know, there were a lot of jobs paying six figures that were clipboard chef jobs, you know. Didn't want that. You know, that was not me. I didn't want that in my life. So then I met with my father-in-law, and he was like, what will it take to get you guys and my granddaughter back to New Orleans? I said, well, I could do some help getting my own restaurant open. And I came here looking at restaurant spaces, ran into Susan, uh-huh. uh, and started talking. She said, well, Kenny and I were thinking about doing the restaurant. And I'm like, well, I'm here looking at restaurants, too. And that's when we decided to do it together with, you know, her name here, me coming in from out of town again. And, you know, there was a story there from me working for her. You know, it opened up as a really good partnership. And, I mean, God, what we opened that for now compared then, what it would cost now. It's a staggering difference. But it was it was a great opening, you know. I mean, it's, I love Susan. I mean, Susan was a great mentor of mine at Bayona. She's the one that probably got me calmed down the most because I was kind of a hothead. I think my nickname was Hotshot or something when I worked over there. <laughs> <laughs> In the year 2000, Donald opened Herbsanct in partnership with chef Susan Spicer. Herbsanct quickly became a favorite of critics and customers alike. By 2007, Donald was named James Beard's best chef in the South and was on his way to building an empire. He partnered with chef Steven Strajewski to create Koshan, which immediately garnered more beard recognition. And in 2014, their restaurant, Pesh, was named Best New Restaurant in America, and their chef partner, Ryan Pruitt, received Best Chef of the South. 
the staff we have now are just night and day from what we started with. And it was rough in the beginning. You know, I did everything. I mean, I worked 8 in the morning to 2 in the morning. I mean, every day. I mean, I did the prep, the expo. I was cooked the line. I mean, I washed dishes. I think that the key element, I mean, I'll never forget the uh, having the conversation with my wife when I said I wanted to open a second restaurant. And she's like, why? <laughs> I don't I said, see you enough already. I said, I think I'll have more time. She goes, that's insane. <laughs> that thinking doesn't work. I'm like, well, this is the way I look at it. I want to open Koshan. And Koshan was, for one, I think Steve is awesome, obviously. And I knew it he right is. away. And he, he was a grill cook at Herb Saint. And I'm like, man, that guy's got talent. So I make him a sous chef. Obviously, he's a great sous chef. I'm like, start thinking, you know, I've been slaving away in his kitchen for years and years. Can I do this when I'm 60 or 50? I mean, it's, I'm not going to want to do this 30 years from now. I mean, there's got to be a, a plan, and I don't want to lose Steve. Somebody with that much talent is going to need to move up. There's an opportunity there for Koshan was to, you know, bring the food of my childhood into a restaurant and bring in Stephen as a partner. Because, you know, I can't be the chef at every restaurant. I can't be in every kitchen all day long. In my opinion, what it takes to be chef of one restaurant is you got to be there all the time and you've got to be in charge and there's got to be a singular point of accountability and steve was talented man he's a great cook he can run a kitchen because being a good chef is not just being a good cook i mean you got to be able to lead people and it's a personality style and a culture as a restaurant that was very important to me you know when i moved to new orleans you know one of my biggest goals in a restaurant was i want to own a place that if I worked there, I'd want to go every day and enjoy the people I stand next to every day. You know, I worked in a lot of kitchens where it wasn't like that. People, like, stabbed each other in the back and bitched about each other, and it was just somebody's over there bitching about somebody, and it's like, I don't, you know, I never wanted any of that, and we don't have that. I'd be more apt to fire someone on the spot for complaining about something than I would if they were in the back smoking crack. <laughs> I mean, well, I'd, rather, I'd rather I'd rather catch someone ripping a line than uh-huh. bitching about another employee. I mean, to me, that's poison, and that's the worst thing yeah. you could do. I was fortunate enough to be able to get people on the same page, and that's just kind of kept growing to where you know you get new managers and new cooks and new chefs, and they and they love what we do and how we run a business. You know, the people that that are management across the board and everybody down to the wait staff, the dishwashers. I mean, the whole staff, I think, is just really a good unit. I mean, there's just a good vibe in the in the group, and I think that that is what carries out to the floor, which then turns into, I guess, James Beard Awards. I mean, it's kind of like a courtship in a way. Partnerships are, are very important. I mean, they're like marriages. You have to know that you're going to be spending time with these people, and you know, good or bad, and partnerships are really tested more when things are when you don't agree. I can't say that there's never been an an impasse on some things, but mm-hmm. then it then it has to come down to another level of how important is it to you. You know, the the key to restaurants is really combining your your concept and and making it make sense with each other. I mean, the the space, the food, the style, all has to be together. If one of those things gets off. It's just that's the kind of that hidden thing that makes restaurants work or not work. Mm-hmm. It's really, unfortunately, not always about the food. You know, it's about how they jive together. Does someone walking in with a certain perception of what a restaurant is, is that met? Uh-huh. Is that expectation level met when they walk in or exceeded? Or is it, well, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. And that's what makes or breaks restaurants. 
That was Donald Link, chef, restaurateur, and outspoken homegrown Louisiana boy. You can hear the uncut and uncensored version of this 2014 interview with Donald on our website at poppytooker.com. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where we have over a decade of Louisiana Eats available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. Don't forget to rate us on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, and the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission. And from D'Agostino Pasta, handcrafted in Louisiana just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris, producer Blake Longlinay, and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.